This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 15th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. When you think of elective surgery, you probably think of cosmetic surgery. That's surgery done out of vanity rather than health. But elective doesn't mean unnecessary. And maintaining prohibitions on elective surgeries during this pandemic can have very real costs. Jeff Singer is a surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We spoke last week. You are in Arizona. The governor is uh, Doug Ducey. Um, what, how has this governor treated uh, your profession, which is physician? Well, first, I'd like to say that as effective May 1st, Governor Ducey lifted his ban that was in place for about six weeks on elective surgery. Unfortunately, um, in many other states, uh, similar bans were put in place and remain in place. Um, and uh, this has uh, significantly impacted other people. Uh, who don't have COVID. Uh, you know, there are other ways you can die besides getting COVID-19. And so, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the general public thinks when they hear the word elective procedures or elective surgery, they think that means unnecessary. It doesn't mean that. It just means that you can elect when you want to get it done because it's not an emergency. And uh, there's a whole spectrum of some elective things need to be done fairly soon. Others could wait a while. So in my profession, my specialty, for example, general surgery, if somebody has uh, a mass that needs to be uh, biopsied because it could be cancerous, well, that's something that doesn't have to be done this second, but it should be done in the next, within the next several days. Whereas if, and then there are some people who have uh, uh, gallbladder conditions that uh, just are mildly uncomfortable and could, could be scheduled at a convenient time, but others uh, are severe enough where the person can't even eat and they're losing weight and there's a risk that uh, a stone can escape from the gallbladder and block the liver. So those things uh, you don't have to do again as an emergency, but you need to get it done fairly quickly. And, you know, they're across the different specialties. Uh, they're, for example, heart patients whose cardiologist may feel, he may see certain signs uh, that are worrisome and recommends a, a cardiac catheterization, which is a way of uh, checking the blood vessels of the heart. And it's, it's in this particular situation, it might not be an emergency where it would be if you're presenting to the emergency room with a heart attack. But on the other hand, the reason the cardiologist is doing it because he's concerned that you might have something that can cause you to have a heart attack. Well, those kind of non-emergency catheterization, they're put on hold. Um, uh, transplant operations are put on hold. So there's a, there's a whole lot of elective things and, uh, both in a surgical and non-surgical arena that, uh, have been put on hold and a lot of uh, very important treatments are going undone. If you're an elderly person with severe cataracts where you're practically blind and now you're confined to the house because of, of the shelter in place orders, uh, that's a real problem. Uh, whereas some people have just, you know, early cataracts and they can get by, but cataract is an elective surgery. So um, what, what's, what concerns uh, us healthcare practitioners is there are a lot of people who are not getting the kind of uh, care they need because of these one-size-fits-all blanket orders put in place by governors. You write in USA Today, in previous viral outbreaks, hospital administrators provided daily updates about their patient census and capacity, informing us of their ability to handle elective procedures as hospitals in different regions of a state saw the surge in flu patients abate at different rates. Each would inform their medical staff about liberalizing elective procedures accordingly. Um, that's fine for hospitals, but uh, what about more broadly? That is to say, 
businesses with a cosmopolitan customer base uh, of people just uh, flowing in and out? Well, when it comes to healthcare, we're seeing that in gen general care. So, for example, uh, many, in fact, most doctors' offices have been closed except for emergencies, and they've been telling patients to stay away unless it's an emergency. So uh, unfortunately, because of that, now as many have been offering recently telemedicine services, but some of the patients are not comfortable doing that because some elderly patients just don't, are not very comfortable with technology. And some older doctors are not <laughs> very uh, uh, facile with it as well. But so what's, what's happened is a number of patients who are treated for chronic il illnesses like uh, heart failure or COPD or those kind of things that need regular check-ins and adjustments in their medications are missing them. And as they're starting to deteriorate and the deterioration is going unchecked and uh, they, they can wind, they're winding up showing up as emergencies. Also, we're seeing a problem with, with children. Uh, the CDC just reported that vaccinations are, have been dramatically down over the last, uh, uh, two months or so. In fact, I, I wrote about this on my blog post uh, uh, just the other day. Um, and that, that's largely due actually to, to, to parents being afraid to go outside and take their children with them to the pediatrician's office because many pediatricians have encouraged uh, parents to bring their kids in. The kids are actually, you know, not that statistically speaking, they're very uh, unlikely to have a, a either contract or have a bad outcome from COVID. And, uh, the, but the pediatricians are making arrangements for this. In many cases, pediatricians are actually coming out, uh, to the car and you're keeping your child in the car with you and they're vaccinating your child in the car. So they're maintaining, making all these social distancing adjustments. Yet, uh, many parents are afraid to bring their kids in. And, uh, especially in, in the pediatric age range, certain, uh, scheduled uh, vaccinations are crucial. And so we could wind up, I worry that we might wind up seeing a new pandemics in the future of much more deadly diseases like measles, for example, that, uh, that we thought we pretty much had, you know, gotten behind us. Um, so th there's a lot of unintended consequences coming out of, uh, mainly out of these one size fits all arrangements, but also but out of fear on, on the part of patients to come out to, to visit the doctors when the doctors are actually making arrangements for them to do so. So, the, and the, as, as I like to say, uh, the scene always has the drop on the unseen. Absolutely. And uh, it, it seems that, the, you know, the, the trade-off here is between highly visible uh, deaths that are cataloged and have a singular cause uh, against future less certain uh, and less visible deaths. In fact, that was one of the points I made in my USA Today article, because the notion of flattening the curve is not a, an alien notion to, to healthcare practitioners. Over the years, when the CDC advises uh, local public health officials, they're expecting an unusually bad flu season, for example. The hospital administrators get in touch with us medical staff tell us about this, tell us that they're uh, making arrangements in case they get a surge, and they're asking us if we could please be much more judicious in our uh, use of their facilities and think about what elective surgeries have to be done sooner and what could wait. And uh, it's much more uh, flexible. It's based on local knowledge so that, uh, you know, for example, just look at, at, at this moment here in Arizona. We've There are two counties, Yuma County and Yavapai County, that have had no 
COVID deaths at all. Uh, Yuma's uh, metropolitan area is about 60,000 people. It's about a three-hour drive from Phoenix. Their hospitals were shut down just like the hospitals in Phoenix where the, the majority of COVID deaths were. So it, uh, under ordinary circumstances, even within the same metropolitan area, if if it seems like the hospital uh, the hospital's anticipated surge is abating, then the administrator informs the medical staff that uh, you could start bringing in more patients now. Things are lightening up. Whereas in another part of the same metropolitan area, that may not be what happens. It all depends. It's all based on local knowledge and there's much more flexibility. But when you have a one-size-fits-all situation, not only is everybody affected by the same rules, but then one person has to make the decision. And the incentives that are in place for that one person, no matter who that person is, are a little different. So for example, we get back to the seen and the unseen. So if you're the governor and you have to decide about lifting the ban, and then a few days later, uh, uh, death rates go up, and that makes it all over the news. Now, most of us medical people know that any death today is probably from a COVID uh, infection contracted two to three weeks ago, but that doesn't matter. The fact is the death rate starts going up. It starts making headlines and and the governor's thinking that's going to be on me. So it's much uh, safer for me to wait a while longer. And that's not to say anything uh you know, bad about the governor. These are the incentives in place. It makes sense for the governor, but it doesn't, on the other hand, what what, the, what it's not seen is all the, the people who are suffering or even dying from other causes while waiting for the governor to lift the ban. And that's the problem in general of one size fits all blanket solutions. These All of these problems are so much better addressed when they're addressed on a local level, mainly by private civil actors uh, who could quickly adjust their plans based upon new information. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.